0: Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 12 is where we are this morning. We started this series last week out of Hebrews 11. What I shared then was a lot of us mistakenly think of Hebrews 11. It's one of the more famous chapters in the Bible, certainly the most famous in Hebrews. We think of it as like, oh, okay, God's just giving us his hall of fame here. This is like this is like Hall of Fame Day in Canton, Ohio, or Cooperstown, New York, where God's calling out names and people are coming forward to put on their special jersey to say, I was a really good servant of God. But that's not what Hebrews 11 is at all. Hebrews 11 is a, is a chapter about how to live a life that looks ahead, that, that holds on to things that last forever. You see, the thing is, the people who first read this were Jewish believers in Christ. And they had it hard for a couple of reasons. First of all, they were very poor, they were persecuted, they were looked down upon, but they also had their fellow Jews who weren't Christians who were giving them pressure. Why? Because for the Jewish people from the beginning of time uh, until today, they've always been the minority wherever they are. They've always been marginalized, and it's been hard for them to, to just stay alive. And so their neighbors and their friends were saying, hey, how come you're stopping? How come you're leaving the temple and the the priesthood and the sacrifices and these traditions that hold our people together and have since the very beginning? Since the days of Moses, at least. And and God knew what was about to happen. He knew that all that stuff was passing away within just a few years of the book of Hebrews. The temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. You go there today, there's a mosque on the Temple Mount. There's not been, since the year 70 AD, there's not been a sacrifice performed. There's not been a Jewish Levitical priest on the Temple Mount. All of that was passing away. Don't hold on to the things that are passing away. Hold on to the things that last forever. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. Hebrews 11 is... The author of Hebrews going down the list of all the heroes in Scripture and showing how that kind of faith is what got them through. How to hold on to the things that last. So, quick quick point of application. If you're a Christian, you sometimes hear from your secular friends and neighbors. You Christians ought to get with the times. You're on the wrong side of history. And without any arrogance or self-righteousness, you to be able to say, no. Because I serve the king, and he's the king forever. And so whatever side he's on is the right side of history. So whatever he says, if I do it, I won't regret it. When I'm in his will, I know I'll make the right decision. So all of that said, uh, just to say that a life of faith often puts you out of step with people around you. Carrie and I were engaged when we were 20 years old. I look back at pictures of us. Y'all, we looked younger than most of these high schoolers here. I mean, we were not only young, we looked even younger. And I remember one night being on a date. Actually, we hadn't gone on the date yet. We were going to pick up some shoes for me, and then we were going to go to the movies. But So we're walking down the, the men's aisle of this shoe store, and the, the salesman, I don't remember his name. Let's just call him Todd. Okay, nothing. hope your name's not Todd. If it is, it's okay. Nothing personal. So Todd comes up and he's chatty, and he's making conversation, and somehow finds out that we're engaged to be married. He said, let me give you a piece of advice. He said, what you need to do is you need to move in together as soon as possible, and that way, before the big day comes, you know whether it's going to work or not, whether you're really compatible, whether you can live together. Now, I have to say, I'm not proud of this, but sometimes Sometimes my strategy is, because I, I'm just tired or I'm in a hurry, or I just don't have the mental and emotional bandwidth to argue, sometimes when someone says something I desperately disagree with, I'll just sit there and look at them, and I won't say anything. So, so right then, my emotion, my, my, my primary thought was, okay... Todd from Payless Shoes, who's my age and isn't wearing a wedding ring. I I sincerely uh, appreciate your marital advice. I'm sure it's sage advice, but um, I I just want to buy some cheap shoes and get to the movies on time, so can you hurry up with this? But my wife had, my wife, my fiance had a very different thing in mind. And and y'all know Carrie, she's not a, a loud, outspoken person, but there was some righteous indignation welling up inside of her. And she spoke. And she spoke clearly and calmly and gently, but she spoke with great firmness and said, no, 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 we, we won't be doing that. Because, you see, we're Christians and we believe that if we do what Scripture says, we're doing the will of God. And if we do the will of God, it will always be the right decision. And so we're not going to live together before marriage. In fact, not only that, when she said not only that, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what else is coming out? (laughs) And she said, not only that, we're not even going to sleep together until our wedding day. And when she said those words, I got to tell you, and this is 31 years ago, when she said those words, if she would have reached into her purse and somehow managed to pull out a two-by-four and hit him between the eyes, he wouldn't have looked any more surprised. Now, to give Todd a little credit, if you take God out of the equation, you just use human logic, his, his advice makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, marriage is a big commitment. Divorce is a terrible thing to go through, wouldn't it? Doesn't it make more sense to give your relationship a test drive first? And yet, not only did the scriptures say that's not the way to do things, but study after study shows that people who live together before marriage actually are more likely to get divorced, not less likely. So 31 years ago, Carrie and I took this great leap into the unknown. Trust me, we did not know what we were getting into. And we made a lot of mistakes. And we had a lot of fights that were just ridiculous. But I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change that decision, that's for sure. Now today we're going to look at A much older married couple who show us in even greater detail what it looks like to live by faith, to leap into the unknown. And their names are Abraham and Sarah. So we'll pick up with Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So this couple, when we first meet them in the Bible, it's Genesis 12, way, way close to the beginning, much closer to the beginning than Hebrews 11. When we meet them, they're, they're, they've got different names. They're named Abram and Sarai. Abram 75, Sarai 65. They've been married all this time. They have no children. They live first in the town of Ur, the great, one of the great cities of the... Of the ancient world in modern-day Iraq, they moved from there to Haran, which is a town that is in what is today Turkey. Aaron's fa- uh, Abraham's father dies there, and that's when God comes and makes Himself known to these people. According to Joshua 24:2, Abraham and Sarah did not grow up in a home that worshipped the Lord; they were, grew up in pagan households. So this, what I'm about to read to you from Genesis 12 is the first time either one of them have ever even heard of God. The God that is true. So Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth. Shall be blessed. So here's Abram and Sarai. They're actually quite wealthy. They've done well in Ur. They've done well in Haran. But now this God they've never met before shows up and says, Go to a place that I will show you. He doesn't give them any details. He doesn't tell them where they're going. He doesn't tell them what it's like there. He doesn't tell them how to get there, or how long it will take. He doesn't tell them how it is they're going to bless every family on earth when the truth is they've never really been out of a narrow little section of the Middle East. Most of all, He doesn't tell them how they're going to become a great nation when they are in their elder years, when they have never been able to have children, and they've already reached the stage in life where they're eating dinner at Luby's at 4.30 every night. Okay? And if Todd from Payless would have been there, He would have put his arm around Abraham and he said, let me tell you what to do, Abe. Why don't you go back to Ur? Forget this God, whoever he is. That's where you made your money. That's where they know you. That's where life will be comfortable. It makes sense. But that's not what Abram and Sarai did. So imagine a very prosperous couple pack a bunch of tents and they move to a place they've never been. The land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, and they have to camp because the people there won't sell them land because they are foreigners. They are immigrants. When they get there, not only are they immigrants and don't have a place to live, but the people, there, there's not enough food. They, they come, they move right in the middle of a famine. So they have to flee to Egypt. They, they go from prosperous to immigrants, from immigrants to refugees in Egypt. Then they move back again The people there won't sell them land. They have to live in these tents for years. Years pass. No baby shows up. You would think that because of this incredible act of faith that as soon as they get to their new home, that Sarah will come out of the the bathroom holding one of those little sticks saying, hey, uh, guess what? It's time to buy a, a car seat. But that's not what happens. Chapter 15, God shows up a second time. He takes Abram outside. First of all, he says, you've got a new name. Your your new name is Abraham, which means father of many. Your wife's name is Sarah, which means princess. Now look up into the sky. Look at all those stars. Some of you, you've lived all your life in cities. You've never even seen this. But if you grew up in the country, or if today you go out to someplace far from any city, on on a night when it's clear, you can look up and you see just thousands upon thousands of stars. God says, look at those stars. Every single one of them represents part of your offspring. If you can count as many stars as there are in the sky, as many grains as there are on the the beach, grains of sand, then you'll be able to count the number of offspring you will have. Not only that, your offspring will inhabit this land. They will inherit this land. They'll have to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but I will rescue them and I will bring them back here, and they will own this land. And then God does something that seems really unusual to you and me. He says, so Abram, Abraham, I want you, to, you and me to seal this covenant. I want you to go out and get a series of animals. And he lists the animals for him. He said, I want you to take those animals and cut them in half and lay them on the ground in a line. So Abraham does. By the way, it seems weird to us. Abraham knew exactly what was going on. In that time, if, if two people were making a covenant, the lesser of the two, the one with less clout, socially, politically, economically, would make an agreement with the greater of the two by by cutting an animal in half and then walking between it as if to say, if I don't fulfill my end of this bargain, then you have the right to do this to me, to to cut me in half, to take my life. So Abraham goes and he cuts the animals in half and he sets them out and he waits. He waits for the Lord to show up and it, it grows dark and suddenly... Out of nowhere appears a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot. Carried by unseen hands, those two instruments go between the pieces. And Abraham is stunned to see. God has not required him to make the covenant, to seal it with his own pledge. God has made his pledge to Abraham. And yet, there's still no baby. Chapter 16 comes. Sarah gets desperate. She says, we're not having kids. I mean, look at me. Look at you. There's no way. So here's my servant girl, Hagar. She's young and fertile. Why don't you have a baby with her? And Abraham does this horrible, wicked thing. It's not adultery. It's something worse. This is a slave. She has no choice. Now, God blesses it. God gives them a child named Ishmael who himself becomes a great people, but it is clearly far outside the will of God. And yet, God doesn't change His plan, which is good news for you and me. It means that God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. It means that when we screw up, which we will, He continues to love us, continues to have plans for us. So we get to chapter 18, of Genesis. Now, a quarter century has passed since chapter 12 when God first spoke to Abram and Sarai, and they're waiting. Abraham is, is taking his siesta in the heat of the day in his tent, and he looks outside. Hundred year old Abraham, ninety year old Sarah. They look out and they see three strangers standing at the opening of their tent. Now, in the Middle East, this is strange to us, but when, in the Middle East, when someone comes to you from afar, You go out of your way to give them lavish hospitality. And that's what Abraham does. Literally kills the fatted calf. I mean, gives them the best that he has. And as they're eating and talking together, he suddenly realizes these aren't three human beings. These are two angels and the Lord himself in human form. The Lord says, Abraham, I got good news for you. This time next year, I'm coming back. And when I come back, your wife, Sarah, will have a baby of her own. Now, Sarah may be 90 years old, but she can still hear. And inside the tent, she hears him say that, and she laughs. Not a laugh like, that's hilarious, but a laugh that says, yeah, right. And the Lord calls her on it. Hears her laughing and calls her on it. And guess what? It turns out to be true. Sarah, 90-year-old Sarah, has this baby and, and holds him in her hands and looks down at this little boy and says, his name will be Isaac which is a name that means laughter. It was Sarah's way of saying, I remember that day when the Lord said these words to me, but it was also her way of saying, I love God's sense of humor. Because she knew ahead of time, she knew the minute that boy was born, every time somebody came across a 90-year-old woman holding a baby on her hip, they would say, oh, I guess that's your great-great-grandson, huh? And she'd say, oh no, I bore this child from my own womb. And then they would look at her like Todd from Payless looked at me and Carrie, right? She knew it was going to be hilarious every time. There's a lot more to the story. You're part of it. We'll get to that. But now I want, to, I want us to ask the question, what, is, what does this story tell us about what it is to live a life of faith? Two things. Number one, the only sure foundation is an unseen one. See, this is hard for us because we want details. If somebody asks you over to their house, don't you want to know how to get there? Don't you want to know what you're serving? I might be allergic to that. I might not like that. What time should I be there? What are we going to do? What kind of games are we going to play? You want details. God doesn't necessarily give us details. God just says, go here and do that. That's what happened to Abram. Abram is a wealthy man. He's doing fine. He's not desperate for change in his life. Then God shows up and says, uproot everything you know and follow me to a place you've never been. Just trust me on this. It's going to be good. And Abraham does. He has to sacrifice a great deal. I imagine his family thought he was nuts. Why does he do this? Why does he go through all of this sacrifice and and trust God for 25 full years? Well, verse 10 of Hebrews 11 tells us. I'll read it again. Hebrews 11.10 says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What city is he talking about? Not any earthly city. You get to the last two chapters of the Bible. And there's this vivid description of a city called the New Jerusalem, the city of gold coming down out of heaven and making its home down here. And some people read that and they say, oh, well, that's." they take it literally and they say that's what our home is going to be in glory. We're going to walk literal streets of gold and have pearly gates, and the city's going to be shaped like this massive cube. And other people look at it and say, no, no, we don't, we don't read details like that in Revelation. Literally, that's a symbol. That's a symbol for the people of God that God is building now of every race and tribe and tongue that are going to live together on the new earth after the resurrection with Jesus as our King. Either way, you interpret that story in Genesis 20, in Revelation 21 and 22. Either way, Abraham was saying, I'll risk all this, I'll sacrifice all of this because I know there's a better city coming. Not just because I'll be rewarded there for my obedience, although that is true. I'm doing this because I want to be a part of what God's doing to redeem this whole world because I know I could make money, I could b- buy land, I could do all kinds of stuff, but none of it will matter. All of it will burn up in the end. All that matters, all that will matter in the end is what I did for the Lord. So I want to live a life of significance. And that means contributing to the redemption of this whole planet. That's what Abraham was doing. He was looking for a city that, whose foundation and builder was God. And it worked. When you read the New Testament, it says over and over again, who are the children of Abraham? Who are the modern-day offspring of Abraham and Sarah? Yes, there are ethnic Jews in that list, but there are also people uh, from every continent and every race on the face of the earth who have given their hearts to the Messiah who was born in the line of Abraham. And that means... That when the next time you're in a totally dark place on a clear night and you go outside and you're able to see the stars and it's just an awesome sight, remember, first of all, those are the exact same stars that Abraham was looking at when he was standing next to the Lord thousands of years ago. Exact same stars. And then think about the fact that when Abraham, all those thousands of years ago, looked up into those stars, one of those stars he was looking at was you. Represented you and your place in the family of God. So the question is, what is your foundation built upon? Abraham built on the foundation that God set for him. And look what he accomplished. Look, what, look at the life that he and Sarah lived. The problem with us, and I include a lot of Christians in this, is we try to do something a little different. We try to tell God, here's my foundation. Would you build there? Here's my foundation. I'm building a foundation on my career, on my money, on uh, on the approval of the people who are important to me, on my family. Lord, that's my foundation. That's what's important to me. You build a palace for me there. I'll, I'll do my best to obey you, but you build me a palace where I have set my foundation. And God says, no, I don't do that because those are all things that are passing away. I don't build on sand. God instead says, here's your foundation. It's on me. You and me work together, and we'll build something beautiful. How do you know when you're building on God's foundation? Because you do things that you wouldn't do if the new Jerusalem wasn't waiting for you. You do things like you donate your time and your money. And when I say donate your money, I don't just mean throw an extra nickel in whenever you feel the need or when a plate comes around. I mean, you give sacrificially to the work of God and to other people. It means you're constantly making decisions that have other people going, is that really wise? I mean, maybe you're taking this uh, Christianity thing a little too far. You're constantly investing in people who aren't related to you. You're not expected to love them, but you do. Who, Who can't pay you back, who can't benefit you in any way. And yet you're saying, God brought this person into my life so I can make an impact on them. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to see what God does in our relationship. That's how you know you're building on the foundation that lasts. So ask yourself the question, what am I currently doing in my life that only makes sense because the New Jerusalem is real? What are you doing that shows that your foundation is built on something unseen, not on things that everybody else is chasing after? Now there's a second lesson from this story. And that is trust God even when you can't see him working. We talk about Abraham a lot. I have. But let's talk about Sarah for a minute. Because it was a very different world in many ways. But for women, it was especially different. Today, today's world, uh, most women in our culture, at least, get to decide who they want to marry, when they want to get married, if they want to get married at all if they want to have kids, how many kids they want to have. That wasn't the case in Sarah's world. In Sarah's world, there were no options. You married who your dad picked. If he was kind, then you were were blessed. If he was mean, too bad. But even if he was kind, you better pray that you were able to have children. Because if you didn't, Your husband, kind as he might be, might just go ahead and marry someone else who could bear him children. And then you would be, at best, the lesser loved wife. This is the world Sarah grew up in. Now, there's no indication that Abraham was married to anybody else and he certainly didn't cast her aside as many men would have in that time, which means he was probably, on balance, a good man. But think about how miserable Sarah must have been year after year, making sacrifices to her gods, hoping this is the year I will conceive, this is the year that I will prove my worth to my village, to my husband, to everybody. By the time she's 65, we can imagine she had already resigned herself to the fact, I guess I'm just gonna die a bitter old woman. That's my lot in life. And then this God shows up that she's never heard of who can speak and has power and makes a promise that she'll be a mother. And she doesn't know any 65-year-old mothers, but hey, he said it. Gets her hopes all charged up again only to make her wait 25 more years. Think about how hard that must have been. There is a reason why when you read Hebrews 11, in verse 11, when it talks about the conception of Isaac, it doesn't praise Abraham's faith at that point. It praises Sarah's. For Abraham, there just weren't the kind of stakes there were for Sarah. This was her whole life. This was her her self-worth at stake. She trusted. Not perfectly, but she trusted enough. She had enough faith in the right God. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you have to wait. Okay, I'm going to history nerd out on you for just a moment, but Basil Mitchell was a philosopher, a professor at Oxford, a Christian man, died just a few years ago, he liked to tell a story to illustrate what biblical faith is really like. He said, imagine you're a French citizen during World War II, and so you're, you're under Nazi occupation, and you decide you want to be part of the resistance. You want to try to overthrow these evil people who are, who are oppressing your people and so many others. And you meet a man, and he's, he's bold, and he's charismatic, and he's the leader of the resistance, and he says, okay, you can join our movement, but you have to obey every word I say even if you don't understand why. And you have to keep doing what I tell you to do, even if you don't know what I'm doing. So you say yes. As the days go by, you see some things happen that look like the resistance is doing good. You see uh, telephone lines toppled and communication lines being destroyed. And you see uh, soldiers being uh, killed in sneak attacks. And you think, okay, we're making progress. But then other times you see things that don't make sense at all. You try to get in touch with the leader and he, he, he's unavailable. Even worse, sometimes you see people that you thought were resistance people and they're dressed as Nazis now and they're arresting your friends. And you don't know what to do, but you keep following orders. Only when the war is over do you realize all that time when you couldn't see what was going on, they were doing things behind the scenes. They were fighting the battles. And those, those Nazis so-called that arrested your friends, those were resistance people who were getting your friends safely to Switzerland. You had to wait until the end of the battle to see what was really going on. And that's the way it is for us as believers in Jesus. Most of the time we don't see what's going on. We don't know the bigger picture. We just have to keep our eyes on Him and trust that what He tells us to do is the right thing. Trust that He knows what He's talking about. So let me just bring this down to our level for the end of our message. I suspect, not because I'm the Holy Spirit, not because I'm any smarter than anybody in this room, but simply because of math. I suspect that there are people today, maybe a few, maybe a bunch, who've never really given their heart to Jesus Christ. Who, maybe you've been religious, maybe you've been moral, but you've never come to that point where you've said, I am a lost soul Because of my sin, I need salvation and it's only found in Him. And if that's you, that can happen today. And if that's you and it happens today, it'll be the best day any of us have had in a long, long time. I also believe that that there is highly likely there are people who would say, yes, Jeff, I've made that decision. I know I'm his, but the truth is, I, most of my daily decisions aren't based on him. I've built my foundation on something else. I'm that guy you talked about. I'm, I'm hoping God will build a castle on my foundation instead of me building on his. Today is a great day to rectify that. You say, I, I've done enough messing around pretending to be a believer, pretending to be a disciple. Now it's time for me to get serious. And then there's a third group I want to talk to. And I know these people exist because I talk to them on a regular basis. They would say, I'm doing my best to live fully for Him. But right now I'm in a period where it's really hard because I don't see anything good happening. All I see is bad. All I see is reasons to walk away. And I need some encouragement. I need some prayer. I need some hope. Now, why should you? Whatever that next step is for you to, to go deeper into commitment to Christ, why should you take that step? Why should you trust this God you can't see? We'll go back to that story in Genesis 15. Think about Abraham laying out those pieces of animals and then God shows up and walks through them. Abraham must have been so surprised. That's not the way he thought it would go. And yet at the same time, he, he probably thought to himself, yeah, but if you don't fulfill the covenant, it's not like I can kill you, God. You're God and I'm a man. What Abraham didn't know and what most people in the Old Testament didn't know is that someday there would come a day when God would become a man. Not so he could just come down and do miracles and teach. He became a man so that we could kill him. Not because he had broken the pledge, but because we had. Not because he had sinned and was guilty of of a capital crime, but because we were. This God not only fulfilled every letter of His covenant, His pledge, but when we broke ours, He paid the price for us. And i got to tell you, if you don't know anything else about God, and you know that, you know enough to trust Him. Because anybody who would do that for you is worthy of your trust. Anybody who would do that for you has nothing but your best interests at heart. So don't think of it as God just wants to use me to accomplish his purposes. Don't think of it as, well, God wants to give me something. No, just think of it as he loves you that much. You can trust him. You can trust him with everything that you have. So whatever it would look like for you to have a life completely built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, why not take that step today?